We're live with number four. Welcome All right. Ted. Nice. All right. Sounds cool. good. Yeah. So this week we're going to take a little bit of a different approach. Basically, we've decided to really focus on where each of us sees the value each week, interesting insights each week, and then talk through them. I think that's going to be a much better result for anyone who consumes the pod and anyone who checks out just clips from the different insights we're sharing, I would say. Cool. Yeah. Let's jump into something fun. You want to start with stock market stuff? Yeah, exactly. I can kick it off. So one of the most interesting things I found in the last few weeks, let me just share my screen here. There we go. So I actually got this from Chamath on the All In podcast, and I thought it was really interesting to see. So this is a breakdown of a full market cycle of returns. And this is from the onset of CPUs and processors. And this is really relevant because right now we've had this historic rise in NVIDIA. I mean, it was like 25%, 24% in a day or something like that. And it really got me questioning, okay, you know, it, why is it at a price to earnings of almost 200? You know, is this thing worth it? And how does this shake out? And this chart's really interesting because it shows you that when you have a new wave of innovation, and these are the stock market returns of these companies. And you can see that initially the value is captured by the chip manufacturers, the semiconductor manufacturers. Moving on, it moves more to the infrastructure and devices that start to capture the returns from the market. You start to see the semiconductors become commoditized and then the value in the margins is in the devices. And finally, you see these software companies, the Google, Amazons of the world, who end up building these massive monopolies on top of the, this core infrastructure. And so I thought this was really interesting. It kind of shows you, you know, NVIDIA probably has a good run of potentially trying to get a monopoly in this space. I mean, what they're doing right now is definitely setting them up to potentially do that. But when other companies see margin and opportunity, they look to jump in. So it's likely we're going to see a similar cycle play out with NVIDIA. Yeah, so th this is super interesting because uh, the main difference I see from at least infrastructure and devices to software is the device is obviously limited to the number of people that have that individual device where Google and Amazon can cross any piece of hardware. So mm -hmm. they're able to expand so much quicker mm -hmm. because a hundred percent of the market can use their services. Whereas, you know, Apple's still going to only be limited to the people that physically have their, their phones. Mm -hmm. And basically for me with my investment hypothesis, I'm very bullish on the big tech companies. Uh, that's where most of my portfolio is concentrated. I put Apple in that category as well. They're not, Apple's much different than Samsung. They're not just a device. They have a whole brand around it. I mean, they have the most, the, the top brand in the world right now. And so, you know, 
I'm very bullish on them, very bullish on Amazon, particularly at this price point, and Microsoft I really like as well. Um, with the basically 50% ownership of OpenAI, Microsoft is very well positioned to take advantage of this new AI race, and they've got the right team to do it. So yeah, I thought this was an interesting insight to share. Um, you know, just insightful to see. I'm I'm not buying Nvidia at this level, but you know, if I can see a pullback, I'd love to own it. Um, I mean, I've been following Nvidia since around 2012, um, when they first, or 2016 rather, when they started having their GPUs to do the computer vision stuff and everything that was going on back then. But now with these LLMs, it seems much more practical for every business to jump in and create a LLM of their own, particularly at Slashdev. We're looking a lot at Langchain, which is a Python framework. I'm just pulling up here. So Langchain is a Python fr framework that basically lets you build on top of all the LLMs that are out there. And it lets you use your own data to build these. So I'm gonna have much more content around this, explaining how this works. We're currently doing a project for a client in this space, but essentially you can train the chatbot on your own data. So it can answer questions about your specific data set and you know to your needs. So it could be your own customer service bot or your own finance bot or whatever you wanted it to be. So really interesting stuff there. Yeah, that's where I think most of this is gonna move. You're gonna have the two subsets, which is, like essentially Google and similar like Bing, which is now using ChatGPT, where it's just mm -hmm. like the very generalized everything on the internet type thing that the typical consumer is going to use. But then specialized language models, um, like when you go to Expedia or if you go to Netflix or you go to uh, an insurance company, and then obviously they don't care about 99.99% of the information on the internet. So I think this is going to be a huge area of growth. And I would say every single company in the world that's significant is going to be using something like this. Yeah. So this is when you hear about digital agents, when you hear about building that out, you know, autonomous agents that can do processes for you, that's Langchain. 99% of the time, that's Langchain. That is the technology. That's the foundation to build those types of agents and models. So. Really cool stuff here, super excited to see where it goes. And yeah, on the topic of stocks, kind of moving more towards Silicon Valley and valuations, I wanna talk a little bit about where we're at and some interesting things that I'm noticing. So this is just up to Q1 2023. And basically here we can see that we're at a low point in terms of venture capital. I mean, we've seen this at Slashdev. Many of our clients who were still trying to get product market fit had to stop building their software. And the clients who had product market fit are pulling back a little bit. And so really we're at one of the lowest points I've ever felt in the market. Most of this venture money is going towards later stage ventures. So existing companies that VCs already believe in and that they know are doing well. But I expect this to turn around. You know, I'm hoping that by 
Q4, we start, start to see more of a turnaround and we start to see the interest rates go down. This is actually the first time in my lifetime where I've felt how much interest rates affect my business. And I mean, we basically had a historic rise in interest rates. I wish I had that one. I could pull that one up as well. But essentially, let's see here. That interest rate. It's interesting to see how much venture capital is going down. Obviously, interest rates plays a big part. But I, I do feel like a lot of VCs are eager to move into the AI space just with the popularity, the mainstream popularity over the last three months, really? Six months, maybe? Yes. So yes. I, I feel like uh, obviously dependent on other factors that we could see a big turnaround in that trend very soon once VCs feel more comfortable with their knowledge on like the landscape specifically in the, the tech AI space. Certainly. Certainly. I mean, it, it's bound to come back. You, you can't beat software right now. I mean, whether it's AI or not, everything is moving towards digital products, software, every business is becoming smarter and you require less resources to build businesses. But this is not the most recent data, but this just shows this is the steepest interest rate hike, I believe, that we've ever had in the history of the Federal Reserve. So this is the fastest. And we've seen all of the, the pressure on banks, the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, et cetera, due to the duration risk that they took on from having those long-term low interest rate uh, government bonds that ended up dropping in value. Uh, among other risky assets. But really interesting to see. Um, I feel like we're still at the low point, but the nice thing is, to me, it doesn't feel like it's going to get a whole lot worse, knock on wood. You know, if you've found a way to make it through this, then you have a solid business model. If anything, it's making you a stronger entrepreneur moving forward. So, yeah. yeah. A lot of uncertainty for for sure. Exactly. So um, before I move on, one last thing on venture capital. This is a really interesting insight. So, you know, myself being in Sweden and being from the U.S., running a U.S. company, I get exposed to different markets and how they operate. And of course, as I look at venture capital, as we consider adding venture capital to scale slash dev even further, I'm studying this market and getting to know the ins and outs. And one interesting thing that I'm finding is you can actually get so much higher of a valuation in the U.S. market versus in European or global markets. And based on my research, I was looking at some data sets of companies and the valuations they were able to get in terms of the price that they got uh, relative to their revenue. You can get anywhere from 5 to 40%, 40 plus percent, obviously, for the outliers, more money in the U.S. if you raise capital. So we're talking about if you raise $5 million, you could have raised $7 million in the U.S., and that is a huge discrepancy and a huge advantage that you need to take advantage of. If you can get access to U.S. capital, you're going to have a better runway and more resources to move forward. So to me, it's a no-brainer. 
And I could see more foreign companies looking to get access to Silicon Valley venture capital and U.S. venture capital moving forward. So do you think that's just because VC firms in the U.S. are more aggressive and maybe just have more funds in general? Um, or it, Yeah. And, and another question is, are you specifically talking about if you're getting funding from the U.S. or are you saying U.S.-based companies that are raising funding are getting more money versus European companies? Or are you just saying the source of the funds is what makes the change? So this is based on being a U.S. company. So you have to get into the U.S. Gotcha. U.S. VCs will invest in companies abroad. But I think to really capture this advantage, you need to have a company in the U.S. But for most startups, they'd be super happy to incorporate in the U.S. if we're talking about 40% more capital that they can bring in. And so to me, it's no brainer. And yeah, it's, it's a huge function of the amount of capital in the U.S. Most of venture capital dollars, I want to say 60, 70% is in the United States. Um, you know, Asia has some decent venture capital going on as well. Europe has some going on. But you just see it fall off a cliff compared to the U.S. And so if you can get into that market and get people bidding on your company there, you're going to do much better because you can get multiple people bidding and you can find the right partner who can help you scale. Of course, when you're raising capital, you need to find the right long term partner. It's not all about the amount of money you can bring in. But I thought that, that was really insightful that you could get five to 40 percent more capital. So what do you think the perspective of sequoia or whoever else large vc firms is if they're looking at a u.s based versus european based company are they looking at like european regulation uh difficulty expanding to different markets in europe as opposed to being able to reach you know 330 million people within just one country in the u.s uh like so what are of they course at? It, they're looking at the business model for sure. So if the business model isn't good, you're not going to get that premium. But if the you know, same business model in France versus US, why like why is that US company pulling in 40% more? I, I would assume regulation and ease of, of like expanding the market would be yeah. the top two. So my, my guess would be supply and demand, more capital in the US. Um, bigger market to expand to, uh, France, smaller market to expand to, more fragmented market across Europe, much harder to expand across Europe, um, and less access to capital. Um, so those are the main things. And of course, the big boys, A16Z, Sequoia, those guys can do deals all over the world. But the majority of US VCs are only doing deals with US companies. And so the, you know, they're focused on that market. That's where the majority of those dollars are focused. And of course you need to also have a good business model, but if you can show that you do business in the U S and you also do business abroad and you have the opportunity to have a U.S. based company and raise in the U S I would say it's a huge competitive advantage. I mean, like I said, it's a difference between potentially five and $7 million yeah. that you're getting for that chunk of your company it, you give it up. It seems like a large part of that is just like the number of people that can invest in you in the US is, is so much greater because there's so many VC firms in the US that are only investing in US. And if you have a larger market, essentially, 
of VC firms, more competition for who's bidding on, on investing and, and then subsequently more, more funds. Um, I do think that, you know, everyone's worried about the economy recession in the U S but I feel like in terms of stability, the U S is still one of the most stable economies in the world. And everyone's kind of still, uh, moving based on the US and we've seen a lot of strength definitely some cons in terms of the like less globalized agenda in terms of uh economic activity in the US but i think it showcases that if there's a company that is working internationally in other markets that for whatever reason needs to pull back to their their home country whether it be regulation uh, or other geopolitical issues, you want your home base to be in the U.S. because of market size, stability of the economy, uh, and and just the the market as a whole in, in the United States. So I think it makes complete sense. And you guys are are incorporated here in the U.S., right? Yes, exactly. So no, I mean I completely agree. I mean. I would say it's been an interesting journey because I moved to Sweden over five years ago and witnessed some of the best social support systems in the world. Uh, everyone has access to free education. Everyone has access to health care. There's pretty much no homelessness. Everyone is taken care of. There are some problems, but it's, it's like everywhere you go is like being in the nice neighborhoods of the U.S., in the U.S., you, you don't want to go to certain areas. So it's it's a very big difference. But one of the best reads I've had recently was Peter Zeon's book, uh, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Really great read where he talks about the geopol geopolitics of the world and just the amount of resources, the amount of innovation, and the strategic dominance of the United States. I mean, the at being energy independent and not having to worry about oil, having nearly all of the different important resources either controlled by the United States or controlled by one of our very close allies like Australia or Canada, which are very uh, natural resource dense areas. And also not having many enemies close by. I mean, if you look at China, China is completely oil dependent, completely food dependent, and all of that relies on resources that are across the world. So if they ever have a problem with someone or if the U.S. isn't policing the oceans like we have and we're talking about tankers potentially getting stolen or getting blockaded, then we're talking about no oil and no food and you can't really be the factory of the world and keep your people happy if you can't do that. So that was a great read. I feel super bullish on the United States. Uh, so much innovation comes out of there. I mean, Sweden is a great place. There's a lot of good stuff happening, but not on the scale of the United States when we look at innovation. I mean, Elon's launching rockets. Elon wants to live his whole life in the United States. He's definitely the best entrepreneur ever, the GOAT, so to say. And so, yeah, it's I feel very good about the position that the U S is in moving forward. For mm -hmm. Sure. And then in addition, Canada to the North with vast resources, and then now Mexico uh, 
coming forward as a potential manufacturing powerhouse, not even potential. I think it's uh, absolutely going to happen and is, is in the works currently. A lot of talent being developed in Mexico. Uh, I think also in terms of like programming and, and technology and innovation, uh, but manufacturing, low cost manufacturing is going to be absolutely massive. So we're talking about the US, but really we're kind of talking about North America because yes. that that alliance is truly what makes the United States, uh, I wouldn't say strong in itself, but expands on the strength massively. So yes. resources, manufacturing, and then everything that the US has to offer, two coastlines. Uh, so as much as people want to doubt it, at the end of the day, it's still relatively the most stable, has the most potential, uh, and that's going to be the case for a long time. Definitely, definitely. And especially even in his book is incredibly detailed, so highly recommend anyone read it. It's, it's like a history and resource and geopolitics lesson, really fun to listen to. I listened to it on audiobook and that. Uh, yeah, but one interesting takeaway as well is the U.S. is so well positioned for renewables. One thing I see is so much of Europe is more focused on renewables than the U.S., but in many places in Europe, renewables do not make sense because there's not enough sunlight. There's not enough wind. You have to put those resources where there's wind, where there's sunlight. If you have, if you're making a bunch of wind turbines and they're sitting there not spinning, you're actually producing emissions and you're not net zero if it doesn't produce enough energy. Uh, so you look at places like Germany that are shutting down their nuclear power. They have very little sunlight. It's not a good place for solar. It's not a good place for wind. Uh, there's a few pockets around the world where this stuff makes a lot of sense. Um, and the US gets a ton of sunlight in different regions gets a ton of wind in different regions. There's great hydropower. There's lots of gas. And so really resource dense and energy is what runs the world at the end of the day. Sending a pair of shoes to someone costs, you know, two cents or so to ship across the world right now with how we've standardized things with containers. If we talk about fuel shifting price or the risk of sending those tankers shifting, then all of that trade starts to deteriorate and we get these smaller pockets of trade partners, I think is what we'll see, especially in our lifetime. I mean, the latest report I saw is we have 40 plus years or so of oil left and uh, we'll see, those, those reports are always changing, but the bottom line is so much of the world is based on oil and especially on the plastics that come from that. Everything surrounding both of us right now is using those uh, fossil fuels to create plastics and devices. So it's, it's really gonna be, in our lifetime, I think we will see the crunch of that. And we'll be able to find alternatives, but they're gonna be more expensive. Not everyone in the world is gonna have access to them. And so, yeah, it's gonna be really interesting to see how things develop. Yeah, yeah, energy is a, a massive uh, point 
of strength to the U.S. And I think, as you mentioned, Germany, Germany is probably the poster child of what not to do in terms of energy. I think they've made every wrong move personally. That's obviously up for opinion. Yeah. Um, but I think that's clearly going to have a massively negative effect on them who've been a leader in innovation. And I feel like they're moving kind of in the opposite direction in some ways, you know, that's going to hinder them significantly from what they're doing. And they're putting a lot of effort into an industry that isn't actually really going to help them, which seems like it's more politically motivated than it is an ideologically motivated rather than economically motivated. And so I think they're continuing to hinder themselves uh, when in the past they've been an absolute powerhouse in terms of technology and innovation. Um, and mm -hmm. I'd say they still are, but they're definitely being uh, hindered significantly. Whereas yeah. the U.S. does seem to be firing on all cylinders, maybe not as, as well as it could be, but in every direction, um, moving microprocessor manufacturing here, manufacturing mm -hmm. in general, uh, everything. And then we still have a, a great inflow of talent coming from other locations, which I think is a massive uh, point that people forget is, uh, as you mentioned, Elon coming here. And mm -hmm. we like to talk about the immigration um, issues that the U.S. is facing. But also what comes with that mass immigration is a large number of people that are coming into the U.S., uh, maybe not illegally through the southern border, but in general, that demand brings incredibly talented people. And so we're still seeing the U.S. being an incredibly important uh, or, or popular location for people that are trying to start companies or trying to join companies as um, as innovators. So yeah, exactly. That population growth is incredibly important. You need to have more people entering the workforce, paying taxes, contributing. And many developed countries are in decline. Zihan also talks about this extensively. But, you know, you look at some of these countries, you know, China's the poster child with their one child policy they had for so long. But the U.S., although I think we need to open up immigration much more for highly skilled individuals and completely have secure borders where we only let people in that we choose to let in and you know we can let people in for asylum we can let people in for more standard jobs but it needs to be controlled but getting the best people in the world that's something the u.s has always won at i think we've had some turmoil in the last 10 years with the political climate but i i just don't see that changing in the long run just because of the foundation that the U.S. has, it's there's too much stability there. There's too much innovation to attract talent. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's interesting to think also. Like, obviously, we want people here in the U.S., especially in you know founders. I guess would be the most important because then that, that actually uh, makes a company based out of here. But even with the kind of pullback from uh, the globalist approach, uh, we still see really nothing holding us back from using uh, outsourced labor in terms of developers, in terms of uh, customer service, I mean, like all of these 
remote related jobs and it's only been strengthened through the yeah the pandemic where our systems are getting better at using this labor so mm-hmm. we're strengthening manufacturing uh and other like geographically dependent uh industries and and processes but we've also been strengthening on the complete flip side our processes of working with outsourced labor in in the areas that we don't need to pull back on so yes. it, that's been in, increasingly valuable and then also in terms of we already spoke about mexico um it's obviously valuable to have people in time zone and geographically closer is ideal when possible and i'm seeing a a large increase in technology related jobs in mexico whereas our office is in india i just spoke with a founder of a uh an agency in in mexico based in los angeles has their their essentially entire uh technical uh, technical team in Mexico City and they have a team of 20 mostly developers developing apps really high level websites and i was speaking with him and he was saying a lot of people are moving down to Mexico for uh for those technical jobs and the skill there is increasing exponentially where we already saw that in mm-hmm. in India and other places Nigeria Mexico is taking off Uh, with that right now. And so I think uh, the more we can bring that um, closer to our shores, but still leveraging outsourced lower cost labor, uh, it's just going to be more and more valuable. So I've been exploring that, that option as well of Mm -hmm. of bringing some of that, uh, those needs um, to Mexico. And then I think there's a big importance of the cultural similarities and being able to efficiently work together. Whereas I see, in India, uh, very skilled labor, they do fantastic work, but you see inefficiencies in communications, um, just general business practices. That's the hardest part of, uh, with some of these markets, working with some of these markets, specifically in this case, India, where you don't find a inefficiencies in like the technical ability, you find it in in the communication and the going back mm-hmm. and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I've been trying to figure out creating the systems around that. And I think that's like our competitive advantage in our field is being to being able to bridge that gap. Cause it's one thing to pay someone, you know, 20% of what you'd pay someone in the U S or 10%, whatever it may be. But if it's five to 10 times more difficult to work with that person, then you're actually at 0% increased yeah. efficiency. Yeah, I think it depends on the role. If you want leadership in your team, there's a reason why a lot of the venture capitalists right now are screaming that remote work doesn't work. It's because if you're paying someone a San Francisco salary, a New York salary, you don't want them to be remote. You want them to be in the office working with you. If they're in the same city, why can't they be there working with you? But I think you would actually be irresponsible as a startup founder to not work with global freelancers, especially when you're starting your venture, because you cannot get a better return. You're gonna be able to get your MVP to market. You're gonna be able to work with software engineers who have eight, 10 plus years of professional working experience. You're gonna be able to get support with your marketing. 
get different specialists on for short periods of time. You don't want a generalist trying to figure that out. You need specialists to help you build your website, to build your Google campaign, to build your Facebook campaign, whatever it might be, to design your product, to help with customer service, and to make sure that you can get to the stage where you're actually making some money in your profitable venture. So working with global freelance talent to me is a no brainer for any entrepreneur these days. And today it's easier than ever to do that. It's easier than ever to start a company. I think how lucky we are because today with software and the internet, you can be a motivated entrepreneur and you can build your own business and build your, build a revenue stream. Uh, you can get into a countless businesses in countless areas. 50, 100 years ago, everything was way more capital intensive. You couldn't open an e-commerce store. You couldn't create a brand. You couldn't do website development, software development. I mean, you're going to have to buy land. You're going to have to battle against JP Morgan and Rockefeller dominating industries. Now there are so many more opportunities for entrepreneurs to get into the market and to build their own empire. And I think that's awesome to see. Um, it feels like the best time ever to be an entrepreneur right now. Yeah. And I think we'll see that just continue to expand through innovations with AI, making it mm -hmm. uh, extremely easier to access uh, or, or, or attain business success, essentially. However, on the on the flip side, I think it'll be a a, a completely changing market where, you know, I, I've been saying like in web developers in the future, like there's going to be ten percent of the number of total web developers, but those ten percent are going to be doing ten x the output. Um, mm -hmm. So there's definitely a, a changing market there. But I'm also seeing like where the shift in valuable labor will be. Whereas opposed to these very technical skills being highly valued, and we've seen that uh, be valued a little bit less and less with our ability to get to outsource labor in those fields. But now I think it's really going to be uh, a lot of value pushed to the top even more so with the strategy of how you're actually implementing all of these things, how you're leveraging that labor, how you're incorporating AI and other softwares and uh, the value at the top is going to be significantly higher because mm -hmm. implementing all of these things is going to be by far the most valuable part of the process. And it already is. We've seen that through CEO pay, et cetera. Uh, but I think that's going to increase 10 to a hundred X, which is absolutely wild. So you definitely want to position yourself um in, in in that place where you're able to put all of the pieces together as opposed to i think being the specialist because the specialists are getting mm -hmm. valued or replaced yeah i think definitely putting the pieces together at the high level you know in positions like we are in we our job is to put the pieces together and to get the whole system working and we're often leveraging specialists to help us put those together. But I mean, I, I would say it's my responsibility 
to figure out where LLMs are going and how you need to put all those pieces together to build intelligent agents and to build marketing funnels and to build customer success processes, et cetera. So yeah, I totally agree there. Speaking of implementing, I would love to go over just a few of the things that we're doing at SlashDev that I would say are unique and that really show what we're capable of in the software space. So let me just share that. Cool. All right, can you see this okay? Yeah, yeah, I got it. All right, cool. So what we have here, these are just Lighthouse performance scores that show you the performance speed, accessibility, best practices, and SEO. And what most people don't do is they don't get this done right. So this is what Google bases your website off of to figure out whether you rank. This is the speed, the SEO score of your website. And it's really important that you're constantly improving this and getting this in the green. Many of our clients have horrible scores on these and we're helping them. So on SlashDev, we have a very heavy front end of our website. There's lots of content, lots of components going on but we have perfect scores across, across the board uh, within, well within the core range for best practices on NSEO. These are constantly evolving and we're constantly improving them. But you can see even relative to companies like TechCrunch and Nike, we're actually beating these two on these core performance metrics. So this is something huge that we focus on with clients. We wanna make sure that their websites are fast and efficient. We wanna make sure that they have all of the SEO bells and whistles, all the metadata breadcrumbs to make sure that they can get in front of their clients online. You need to win the online marketing game. And this is one of the core things we do to do that. So in addition to this, I wanna give you a peek at what's possible when you build a custom website. So when you build a custom website, when you're not on a website builder, it gives you the power to do things that normally you couldn't do. And so one of those things is called programmatic SEO. So let's say you're like slash dev and you target different engineering skills like React. We are able to build pages that are specific to React with the React logo for with our React engineers across all of our skills that we have in our network. In addition to this, we can plug in interview questions based on React. We can have an article specifically about React on this page. And we have pages like this for all of our skills, okay? But FAQ as well, specific to React. Okay, but let's take this one step further. We want to target some specific locations where we do business. So we also have these pages for different locations like Austin, Texas, like New York, etc. All the same building blocks, but with a different header and keywords. And the key to this is to continue to make each of these pages more unique. So we have a unique React blog. You know, what we should have on that page is a unique article specifically about the Austin ecosystem, specifically about the New York ecosystem. But you can see where I'm going with this. And what's cool about this is these pages within 
days and weeks of getting published, we're already getting clicks on Google because people search stuff like this. People search hire freelance React developers in Austin, Texas. People search hire freelance React developers. And so we are getting those keywords that are allowing us to get organic traffic and grow our business in the most affordable way, I would say, which is SEO. And so that's that's programmatic SEO in combination with the site speed that we're doing that is really one of the key things we're doing to stand out and to grow online. So how many pages do you think do you have uh, total on your website right now? Uh, over 3,000 right now. That's going to double in a week or so. Um, because you also have to factor in every engineer that works with us has a profile. Uh, every skill we have in our database has a page. Uh, every every skill has a job page that's more about hiring and less about uh, so for engineers so to say so it's more about get a react developer job um you know things like that and so, then additionally what we're doing right now is we're about to roll out our first language vertical so we're going to roll out a swedish language page and then we're going to roll out the rest of europe uh you know german french Spanish, et cetera, so that we have all of those language tar languages targeted as well. So how are you able to create 3,000 pages in, in a week? How are you reaching that efficiency? So that's not in a week. That's where we're at now. But like those, those pages I showed but, you, once we created that page, they were all done. Yeah, but you said one it'll, it'll be 6,000. You'll be doubling in, in a week because right? we're because we're taking all the pages we have now and we're going to have them in swedish gotcha so, okay yes yes and and so how how are you efficiently doing that because is that are you using like a software to just yeah so we're we're doing it and you know this is one of the services we offer but and it's one of the reasons why you should build in a technology like react or Next.js specifically is what we use because it gives you the freedom to do stuff like this. And it's got locales built in to build different language locales within your website. So many of it is shared components that then plug in the skill or the variable we need. And then we have a master file with all the core language we use. And then we just need to translate that with GPT, make sure that a local proofreads it and make sure it looks good. And then we can roll out a Swedish version. So it's easier than it's ever been. I mean, you used to have to pay lots of money for translations. Now with ChatGPT and honestly with Google Translate for many years now, it's been very easy to get B plus level translations done. Mm -hmm. And that's most of what you need. Um, you know, once you roll these things out, these won't, our Swedish site won't be navigatable. It'll be there for SEO. So if you search a Swedish search term, you'll land there but you won't navigate to it from our main website, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, not until we've had uh, local language speakers audit those languages to make sure it's all appropriate, et cetera, before we want it to be navigatable. Mm -hmm. um, on a separate note, but you bring up GPT and, and Google, got me thinking of it. How do you think 
chat GPT is going to affect Bing's market share in the search market? I mean, it can only help when you're at the bottom of the barrel, I guess, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but is it going to actually bounce it back? Like, I'm not going to go to Bing. I'm going to use chat GPT for stuff that I need. Um, but and, uh, Google think- Bard has a lot of cool stuff. Google Bard didn't really get as much hype, but some of the stuff they can do and the results I'm seeing are actually better than ChatGPT, um, which is really interesting. But I'm glad there's competition. I want there to be competition so I can use the best service at the end of the day. And there's what we're also seeing is a lot of these open source algorithms are starting to become better than the private ones. So pretty soon, rather than use ChatGPT, it might be actually better for you to just use an open source algorithm on your solution. Then you're not using as many tokens. You can self-host it, et cetera. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. But well, yeah, man, that's, that's everything I had to share is uh, hopefully that added some value for anyone listening. Some of the cool things well, I'll try every week to, you know, show some inside tips on, what we're doing at slash dev, how we're finding value and also just share some interesting insights and uh, anything that I consider interesting and interesting for software entrepreneurs and growth and business every week. Um, Cool. Awesome. That was great. Well, I'm super excited to uh, dive back into some work stuff and business this week and then come back strong uh, next week with a lot of good topics. Awesome. Cool. Cheers.